Welcome to the Citizens Report. It's the 9th of July. I'm Robert Barwick, and I'm joined today by Citizens Party founder and leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. In this week's Citizens Report, Kiwis act on big four bank risks, but Aussies in the dark. And what is Australia Post hiding? But before we begin, um, we're still getting used to this. Craig, but just to remind the viewer, for the sake of getting the message out on this, on this uh, using the, the, the YouTube platform, please like this video, subscribe to the video, subscribe to our channel if you haven't already, click the bell icon, um, that'll give you the notifications that new uh, products from on the Citizens Report channel are out, and uh, share widely. This is very important. We, um, this show began on channel 31, uh, and it was on, it was in, in four, I think we were on TV in four states at yeah. that time. Mm -hmm. um, but the federal government's, you know, sabotaged all that. So YouTube and, and uh, online is our, is our main forum now. It's very important that we actually get the message out as widely as possible what we cover. So please yeah. do those things. We put a lot of other product beside the Citizens Report up, Robbie. We've got yeah. the Citizens Insight, which is more in-depth in documentary style. And we've also got the, we put up the ads that we have on various other social media platforms so people can see what we're actually campaigning on. And our channel is not just about information, it's about information about what we're doing, we're making, you know, intervening into Australian politics. So you need to be up to date with the things that we're, we're talking about. And finally, can I say, when I promote something in terms of the, a product that, I rec that we recommend people get and read, um, you can click on the little eye icon above Craig Isherwood's head there on your screen. And that's how you can find a link to get access to those things that we talk about in the show. All right, so and we'll get this down to a fine art. Craig, it's sort of new, still new for us um, uh, promoting ourselves this way, uh, but I'm sure the viewer understands. Let's get on with it. First, what Kiwis, sorry. First, Kiwis act on big four bank risks, but Aussies are in the dark and Craig, we're going to talk about it. This is actually quite a, a, a stunning story that we're, we're about to talk about. Um, but let's set the scene first by talking about the state of play of, of some banking issues in Australia that we've been covering recently. Um, one of the things that we've been highlighting uh, in the last few months is there's a scandal in Western Australia um, to do with uh, over 100 retirees. And it's not just Western Australia, but it's mostly Western Australia. Over 100 retirees are facing eviction because they got dudded um, by a, a rent-for-life scheme and it's from a company called Sterling First, right? Yeah. Now, those victims, they, they, um, they're losing court cases. Uh, we don't try to go through all the details. We've covered on our show before. There's, there's, there's um, press releases about it on our website people can look at. Um, but these are, these are pensioners that are facing eviction, right? Peter Bazasto, the great Carlton football champion, is one of them. Right? These people were talked into something, they didn't know what they were being talked into. And the worst part about it was that the bank, the corporate regulator, ASIC, knew that the people running this scheme have a track record a mile long of dudding people in financial schemes. Yeah. Right? So it's not any other kind of, just not, not just any kind of financial scheme, it's a specific one that ASIC is culpable. 
and ASIC is the Australian government, mm -hmm. right? And in this case, we support the call for those people to be compensated by the government, $18 million totally, so they can keep their homes, right? You don't treat pensioners this way, as the great Denise Braley, who's, champ who's championing them, um, has said. Those victims are calling for a Senate inquiry into ASIC. Now, don't roll your eyes and think, oh, another inquiry. Well, <laughs> I mean, it could be like that. Well, that is the job of the Senate, Robbie, to really, really examine what's going on, particularly when you've got you know, low, you know, members of the government like Andrew Hastie and Ben Morton who are doing nothing for those people. Yeah, these are uh, two ministers that, are, that represent these people in that area, and yeah. they're doing nothing. They're yeah. more interested in their own agendas. Andrew Hastie wants to start a war with China, rather than represent his own constituents and save these people's homes. Well, you know, the Citizens' Party, Robbie, this is what we do, is we fight for these sorts of causes, and I'm, I'm very pleased to know that there's a number of the uh, Sterling First victims. I don't have to call them victims. I mean, that, that's a terrible thing to have to remind yourself about all the time, but they're joining us and joining our party, and that's a very important thing to do because the more you can bring people together yep. around a fight, a political fight this is, this is about taking on the powers of ASIC, uh, not so much the powers of ASICs, but the powers of the government to shut ASIC down. And I believe, you know, what you've had is the more uh, a huge push by the Morrison government towards deregulation. Deregulate everything. Don't protect people against the powerful banks and so yeah, forth. Yeah, and ben, and ben Morton, their, their local member who's a minister, is leading that charge. Yeah. Yeah? But ASIC is proof that you need a regulator. Um, the failings of ASIC is a failure to regulate, not a failure because it's done too much regulation. It hasn't regulated enough and let these people be sitting ducks to these victims. So this is, and, and I must say, the other thing I, about why I said it's not just another inquiry, you're right, it's a Senate inquiry and this Senate is getting better and better informed about these issues, right? Mm -hmm. There are people in this Senate that are genuinely committed to, to cleaning some of this stuff up. So a Senate inquiry into ASIC would be very good. It would touch on this case, but there's many, many cases unresolved that um, they should deal with. And, they, and, and the inquiry should also look at what, the, what Morrison and Frydenberg have just done, where you had the ASIC chairman from 2018 till recently, James Shipton, appeared to be trying to do some things to take on the banks, mm -hmm. and he was bundled out yeah. of there. And there's been replaced with a, sick, a bank sycophant, right, uh, or a business-friendly chairman that, that Josh Frydenberg wanted. Yeah, he got the same right? treatment as Christine Holgate, as we reported on the other, these exactly. other programs. Robert, so, yeah. Exactly. So, what, so, so, you know, an inquiry is very important. We, we fully support that. We put out a statement about it the other day. Um, that's one of the things you can click on the eye and look at it on our, on our website, where we just list the various reasons that, that this inquiry should happen into ASIC, using the Sterling First example. But Craig, it's a reminder that the Morrison government is in full bank protection mode. Right? Yeah. That's what we're dealing with in Australia. And that's going to be relevant what we do, talk about in a minute about New Zealand, right? because the contrast is actually quite um, uh, stark. Now, you mentioned this deregulation free-for-all, though, because <laughs> right? this is part of the bank, the, the, the bank protection mode the Morrison government's in. And we've got an article in this week's Australian Alert Service, um, which uh, this is... Uh, I forgot to talk about this earlier. This is, this is you know, what we cover in this show... We elaborate on it in our, in our weekly magazine. If you haven't received a free copy, you can call in or, or, or email us and get and request one. If you have received one before, feel free to subscribe. This is this is a weekly magazine. It's available by subscription. It's how we finance what we do in the Citizens Party, selling subscriptions to this. Um, but Melissa Harrison has written this article: COVID nineteen, a convenient excuse for deregulation, free for all. And she's talking about the things that 
Frydenberg, the treasurer, said had to be done on an emergency basis because of COVID, he now wants to make permanent, right? And, and the, the list of things include restrictions on regulators. And that, this is, again, their, their war on regulation, right? Mm. Or we've got to deregulate. The regulators are bad. So now they're going to create a statement of expectations on regulators that each minister gets to put out and the, the regulator will be assessed based on whether it meets the statement of expectations that is based on the government's deregulation agenda. So the government is saying, you're a regulator, we're deregulators, we're tying your hands behind your back. And that's the new game in town. Now, you know, be, be clear, we're not talking about, you know, some of the bureaucratic red tape that would drive anybody mad. Mm. The, the government talks about that stuff all the time. When they deregulate, though, their first priority, Craig, is financial deregulation. Yeah, protect the banks. And look, yep. what, look what the Royal Commission came up with. I mean, it was disgusting. And they're saying, leave the banks alone. Don't let the banks, don't control the banks under any measure whatsoever. Exactly. Where our policy, Robbie, is completely different. Bring in a national bank. Bring back the old idea. The Commonwealth Bank used its powers. We used the powers that were actually sort of demonstrated during World War II, where Curtin and Chifley used the Commonwealth Bank to control the private bankers. And see, Keep once we got rid of the Commonwealth Bank, it was yep. sold off because yep. it represented the potential for such a threat, and was a threat during World War II, to actually control the private banks. And the private bankers hated it. Well, let me just mention a couple of other things that the government's trying to do with this deregulation agenda, though, because it, it gets bizarre, Craig, yep. and, it, it, and it just backs up everything you've just said. Part of it involves the government itself introducing more regulation in order to, they, they feel it's necessary to overregulate in order to deregulate. <laughs> How does that work? They want to regulate class action lawsuits against the banks, right? So, because sometimes these class action lawsuits are the only way that bank victims can take on banks because an individual one never could. I was talking to a bank victim yesterday. He wanted to take on ANZ Bank and he came up with $10,000 to get his foot in the door and then he had to come up with $50,000 to put into a trust account before he'll be allowed to step into a court in case the ruling went against him. Nobody can afford that. They're bank victims. They're bankrupt, hmm. right? And this is how the banks squeeze everyone out. So what happens is class actions come along and the class action gives, creates, provides the money. Everyone chips in a little bit and you can take on the banks that way. Well, the banks don't like that, no. right? So the government actually wants to regulate class actions as part of its financial deregulation. And this is, um, these are some of the things that it started last year. And in terms of the specific COVID measures they want to continue, they, they, they weaken the requirements for continuous disclosure by corporations for the market, right? Um, because the market's supposed, the, the corporations are supposed to keep the market informed. Um, and they're saying, oh no, you don't have to, you, we, we don't want you to have to do that as much anymore. Virtual annual general meetings, and this is a classic one because, um, again, annual general meetings have been one of the only ways that bank victims have been able to take on the banks because... They can front up. Well, there's a group called Bank Warriors, yeah, yeah. and they go and buy $100 shares in each bank. That's one and, share with the Commonwealth Bank. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah, whatever. <laughs> and that gives them the right to go to the bank, AGM, stand up there and say, hey, Mr. Chairman, hey, Mr. CEO, remember me? Um. Well, we'll put, up, we'll put up this picture. The gentleman in the middle is Michael Sanderson. He's with um, our friend, Dr. Wilson Sy on the, on the left and, and um, our other friend, Dr. Peter Branson and Bank Reform now on the right. Bank, but Michael's a bank victim. He's from Bank Warriors. They wear these bow ties. 
And they get up and they say, remember me, I'm Michael Sanderson, what are you doing about my case? Right? And they get to talk truth to power in that forum. So COVID came along, oh, AGMs have to be virtual now. Now that was okay, that was the excuse. Frydenberg wanted to make that permanent, mm. permanent virtual AGMs, right? Well, there was pushback straight away. Now they're going to be a sort of a more hybrid form, but it shows you the intention mm. that they're dealing with. And then finally, um, the one, other one is electronic documents. You know, we, we need to do more stuff online. What the problem is, as the bank victims say, when you consider how much fraud has taken place with bank documents over the years that they've been victims of, of it's much easier to do it if they're electronic documents, right? Yep. Um, you don't have to, you know, the proper signatures, etc. It requires so, a level of trust between the people issuing them and the people signing them. Robbie, we, 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 you know, our organisation has to deal with these things, particularly during COVID, and there is this risk about, yep. you know, where is there a trust level? So it becomes a little bit arbitrary. And these things can be intercepted potentially, and there's all sorts of questions of security. But whereas it's, if it's in, if it's in actual, like it used to be, yep. for, for up until a recent period, if it's not in black and white or blue and white, in the case of a blue pen, <laughs> in front of you in a document in written form, you know where does it exist? So when you see all these all these um, different things in one place, as Melissa's put them in this article, what you see is a clear intention by the Morrison Frydenberg government. It's it's bank protection all the way. And Craig, that's um, the, there's, there's, they're protecting two things. They're protecting the banks because they always do, but they're protecting what the banks have turned our economy into, mm. which is a property bubble. Mm. Right? That's all. That's the only game in town. Everything the government's done is trying to put the property bubble up, and they've done it in collusion with the RBA, the Reserve Bank of Australia. And this week, Philip Lowe, the governor, came out and he made it clear: interest rates won't be going up. Right, don't worry about it, boys. He's telling the banks, he's telling the markets, you know, keep going ahead because we want to push those property prices. They don't say that, but that's actually what they want to do. So that brings us to New Zealand because the contrast is actually very stark. There's something happening there. Um, and it's not the only country. There's a lot of other countries that are, say, that are starting to say, hey, there's problems here in the financial systems, guys. We need to be aware of the risks. Um, in It's 13 years, Craig, since the global financial crisis, yep. right? And what happens is... Over time, you know, people forget those experiences and the risks start to blow out. So Australians should be looking at New Zealand and going, hang on, why are they doing that? Because what they're, they're, taking, they're, make, they're taking actions to protect themselves against risks from our banks, Australia's banks. You know, 85% of New Zealand's banks, banking system is run by Australian-owned banks. Yes. Our Australian-owned banks are highly exposed to the inflated property bubble. Yep. You've also got the, the uh, function of the Morrison government trying to dilute the responsible lending laws to yep. out, lend out more credit. Pump You've it up more, yep. 190, 200% of household debt problems and you're getting ballooning public debt inside Australia. So what the New Zealanders are looking at, they're saying, oh, wait, hey, wait. We don't want to be exposed to their mess. Yes. We don't want to be exposed in case there's a problem with any of the banks that we can't control over there. If there's Therefore, a problem in Australia, we don't want that spilling we over We don't here. want that here. So they're saying, okay, we're going to increase the capital controls of the banks in New Zealand from, I think, 16% to 18%. No, no, so from 10% more, to 18%. Sorry, 10% to 18%. They're, they're, what the New Zealanders are doing are increasing capital requirements, not control, but capital requirements yeah. of all the banks to quite a large a high level, some of the highest levels in the world. So 16% for New Zealand banks, yeah. 18% for, 
for that's Australian up from banks. 10%. That's up from 10%. Wow. Yes, right? that's right. 18% for Australia's banks. The, um, uh, the Financial Review, Australian Financial Review on the 24th of June, actually, just, this is the, I'll just read you this quote. Reserve Bank of New Zealand's plan, they called this, the quote, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand's plan to ring fence its banking system from that of Australia by forcing the country's biggest banks, all subsidiaries of Australia's big four, to hold substantially more capital. And the importance of this capital, Robbie, is that it's actual real capital. It's stuff that can be liquidated if necessary because this is the basis upon which banks lend out. It's the buffer to absorb losses if there's a problem. Right, exactly. So these, hang, these have to be high-quality assets, not derivatives and speculative instruments, but real, real actual assets like property. No, no, for sure. Property. For sure. Uh, the, it, 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 it coincides with something else the New Zealand government's doing and the Reserve Bank over there, which is they're trying to cool down their property market. So we're trying to pump ours up, ours up like crazy. Well, they're, they're trying to cool their. They're talking down. about eliminating negative gearing, which over here causes an enormous eruption if the government yeah. even talks about it. Of course. Well, 2019 election, right? Um, so this is. Let's let's go back to that question again. That Australia, Australians who are hearing this should be asking, what? Why would? What's what's going on? Why would the Reserve Bank in New Zealand be doing this? What does it know about Australia's banks that we Australians are not being told? Right, and so we have an we have an article again in this week's alert service by a New Zealand economist, Morris Vaughan. The headline is Australia's big four banks threaten New Zealand's economy, and he goes through some familiar themes to us. The ones you've mentioned, looking at the behaviour of Australia's banks, looking at the, the intention of the government through responsible lending laws, etc. But then just and that's that's related to the housing bubble, and then he also adds in the derivatives issue. Right. Australia's banks have a massive exposure to derivatives. Um, it, it, it's, it's between 40 and 50 trillion dollars, this exposure, right? And all these things are systemic risk. Um, and Craig, Morris Vaughan in this article reminds people about the Glass-Steagall Act, right? Which is, was in place in the United States from 1933 to 1999, mm. that um, when that was in place, provided the protection of the financial system that nothing since then has because it didn't stop people from gambling, but it said if you gamble, if you're a gambling financial institution, you can't have anything to do with banks that hold deposits. Yet yet today, our big four banks are all deposit-taking banks and they're massive casinos. Yeah, well, it's been, right? it's been 13 years since the global financial crisis, Robin. It's a bit shocking to hear that just since COVID-19, the Federal Reserve you know, has pumped in $4 trillion dollars in quantitative easing, and another $9 trillion in repo uh, purchase in the repo market, right? So you had this, in your, and they've increased their balance sheet up to $8 trillion. Now, these are unheard of le levels, and it's all based upon money going into, effectively, the banks and their and the bank's main customers these days are the speculative hedge funds. Yeah. So this is a huge speculative bubble built up around this money printing operation which means that the entire financial system is even more uh, exposed to a collapse than it was back in 2008. In the original no, that, that's crisis. right. They, and they kick the can down the road. These central banks know this. I yeah. mean, they're talking to these people all the time, and then now they're saying, well, hang on, we're not going to expose ourselves to Australia's problems. Well, and Australians need to take stock of that, Craig, because you mentioned it earlier. Um, there's a reason we are, are campaigning on, on a... A national bank policy, right? A national banking system. We need bring back, you know, we want a postal bank, 
We want a development bank. We want a full national bank. We need, we need a public presence back in the banking system that can provide a safe, secure financial system that Australians, that the, that the average person can use. And, you know, if these banks want to be casinos, then they can lose their own shirts. Well, that's why we, right? pro- that's why we talk about this idea of Glass-Steagall, the separation between the speculative merchant banking side of things and the actual commercial banking, the necessary banking system. Yeah. It, it's the boring banking, Robbie, and the banks don't want us to talk about it because it means that they lose the, the very lucrative speculative activities that they're currently in, which is all, all also creating all the problems. No, exactly. So, um, you know, this is, I think, wasn't last year the 30th anniversary of the Underarm Bowl? <laughs> right, we have this strange relationship with Australia and New Zealand, Craig. New Zealanders do have a chip on their shoulder about Australia. You know, we're the big brother or whatever. Australians have this arrogant. We we just if anything in New Zealand we like, we steal it, like Farlap and Russell Crowe. <laughs> anything anything we don't like, you know, we we look down our nose at it. Australians, therefore, whatever your view of New Zealand, you need to be a bit embarrassed that there is knowledge in New Zealand about our banks that we're not being told, right? And yeah. we need to. Um, we need to uh, blow the whistle on that and fix up our banking system. All right. In the time we've got left, let's, let's change to uh, the next subject. What is Australia Post hiding? Now, this is not unrelated, Craig. We're, we're going to talk about the Postal Bank now. But before we do, um, the, the latest product that we've put up on our YouTube channel is the interview I did earlier this week with Angela Cramp from the Licensed Post Office Group, the Executive Director of the Licensed Post Office Group. This interview is called The Untold Story of the Australia Post Scandal, right? I, I urge, I, I really wanted Angela to tell this story, right? Because she told me the story, give the history of the LPO Group. Because what I'll do, most people who review this show regularly will be aware of the Australia Post Christine Holgate issue and the campaign that we were involved in. And of course, that culminated in inquiry. We got on Four Corners the other week. Um, but Four Corners did not tell the whole story. They just no, did the... that's right. You know, brush, and that, and that's, that's actually what I said. I wanted to make sure we, we told the whole story. Because the whole story is, you really got to know what the LPO's licensed post offices went through, mm-hmm. right, before you can truly appreciate just how great Christine Holgate was. I mean, she was the saviour, right? And then the saviour was crucified. Sorry for the religious overtones that reference, but if you're an LPO, that's what happened to you. A lot of people, right? Robbie, in the public have followed the story. I've been surprised about how many people know about Christine Holgate now. Yeah, yeah. So please watch that and share it. We are still. This is still an unresolved issue. Yes, Christine Holgate's moved on, but we need to resolve the issue. We need justice for the LPOs. We need. We need to change the Australia Post board. We need to change government policy. Right? So the, the recommendations of the Senate inquiry must be enforced. We have to fight for that. Um, and we need a long-term solution, which is a postal bank. And that brings us to this subject, because last week we broke the news on this show that as a result of our campaign, we're, we're seeing signs that the private banks have felt, well, we better get on the, on the same page here. <laughs> and suddenly, last week, CBA and NAB, Craig, announced a 10-year renewal of this bank at post deal. So the, the stunning the stunning deal Christine Holgate achieved in 2018, which was going to expire this year, those two banks have renewed it for 10 years. And, and so one side of this equation is undeniably good news, right? It's certainty for Australia Post LPOs for the next 10 years because it's the revenue they get from this deal that makes them viable. 
and it's good for the communities they, that, they, that they get those banking services, right? So that is good news. However, there's a nagging doubt there because Australia Post and the, and the banks have not made the terms of the deal, the new deal, public. In 2018, when Christine Holgate achieved the deal for, for the first time, she told everybody, great big press conference, great big announcement, and the centrepiece of the deal was they paid, in 2018, they pay, each bank paid $20 million as a community representation fee. And that's, it was that money that made them viable, right? $200 million over three years was, was what they ended up paying um, for Australia Post. Why are they keeping this deal secret? That's the question. Then they've told the LPOs that their payments won't change, but that's a verbal pledge, right? We are suspicious that the, L the Australia Post were negotiated down to significantly less money. Now, I'll put in a freedom of information request to find out, Craig. Mm -hmm. um, we're open to being cor corrected about that, but if they, did get, if they did renew for the same terms or even better, they would have told us, right? And if they have screwed them down to... 10 or $5 million a year instead of $20 million, as mm -hmm. banks are want to do, right? That is terrible. So we need to know what, how much have they paid as a community representation fee. We need to know, in that 10 years, are there um, times when, when it's written into the contract that banks can, can withdraw? Because that would indicate then this may just be a PR exercise, and the banks are hoping that once the attention on Australia Post dies down, they can pull out of this. Because has the nature of the banks changed? Not on your Nelly. Right, and one of the um, uh, one of the proofs of that that Angela and I discussed in this interview is bank the fees the banks charge for bank of post transactions three and four dollars per transaction, and they don't deserve to charge any of it. All the expenses are carried by the LPOs. There's no when the L, when you go do a banking Craig at a licensed post office, um, they plug in your information on their terminal. That goes to Australia Post software. And that interfaces with the banks, and the process is all done. Yeah. There is no justification for the banks to charge four dollars for a bank and post transaction, right? If you're a twenty, if you're a little old pensioner, paying a, a twenty-five dollar bill, and you're going to pay twenty-nine dollars, right? This is just bastardry. Well, by it's the, banks. the same bastardry of charging nineteen point nine nine percent on credit cards, Robbie. Yes. There's no reason for it. It's but this is the mentality yep, of dealing yep. with the banks, and uh, I think. You know what you're seeing. It's very interesting. If you know, we, we can encourage a few senators at the next time Australia Post is fronting their yep. their, their, their their committee to ask them, please, can you show us this How deal? Much? How much are we making? And it would be very interesting. And I don't suspect, and I suspect it might happen that the CEO will say, "Sorry, senators, but this is a private contract. You can't know." If that's if they claim commercial, commercial confidence, yeah. Whereas three years earlier, Christine Holgate did not claim commercial inconfidence. No, well, see, right? it's a, it, she was proud of that. They deal. argue the fact, you know, yep. Morrison, this is a public institution, it's owned by the people. Well, if it's owned by the people, why are you dealing with secret, secret uh, deals with the banks? Yep. I mean, so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of things to dig up here in terms of uh, you know, the, the, the sort of dirty deals that the banks get into. And the thing, the thing here about, about this, Robbie, is it's the people in rural areas in particular, in remote areas, that will suffer as the banks are bastards. Well, and we've got to, we've just got to uh, realise that the more people get involved in our Australia Post campaign, Australia Bank, uh, you know, Postal Bank campaign, the more it will shine a focus uh, on 
the sort of criminalities and will not, you know, and so forth that the banks have been involved well, in the past. Well, Craig, we took our message to those very people this week. Yeah. Um, the Queensland State Secretary of the Citizens Party, Jan Pakulis, and a uh, hardy band of uh, loyal activists hit the road. Um, once the temporary lockdown in Brisbane was lifted, they hit the road, went to central Queensland, visited a whole bunch of towns. We'll put some photos up on the screen. You can get a sense of it. Visited a whole bunch of towns, distributing our flyer for a postal bank and meeting with as many people in the towns as possible, the mayors, all the councillors, people in the, in, in the businesses, etc., um, uh, to inform them that we have a bill, the Commonwealth Postal Savings Bank bill, which the independent member of parliament, Bob Catter, intends to introduce in parliament the first opportunity that he gets, perhaps even in as early as August, a bill that will that will expand Australia Post into a postal bank. Because if you if you wondered if you had if you heard about the ten year bank at post deal extension and thought, oh, does that mean we don't need a postal bank? You can see by what we just went through. That's absolutely not true. We do need a postal bank because the, it does, the, the nature of the banks has to change and only by breaking their monopoly and forcing them to compete will we do that. And that's what this Commonwealth Postal Savings Bank will do. It'll allow, if people um, who bank at it will have their, their deposits 100% guaranteed because they're, um, it's owned by the government, they will, uh, it will not discriminate against anybody. There will be no debanking with the, with the Commonwealth Postal Savings Bank, right? Everybody will have a right to bank there and like the private banks now discriminate against whoever they like. Um, it'll support the cash payment system, right? It, it will m make sure there's cash available to the economy, whereas the private banks are trying to phase it out. So there's so many good things going for it, and the money, its surplus um, profits can be invested in the economic development of Australia, right? Yeah. So that's what that's what uh, Jan and the Queensland crew have been taking to central Queensland towns this week, and we're that's part of our campaign to get these towns and councils, etc., pass resolutions endorsing the Commonwealth Postal Savings Bank. We need to replicate this right around Australia. So that's the nature of the campaign now. Um, if, you can, if you're in a position to, and if you want to, um, please contact us to get involved in it because we want resolutions. Wherever you are in Australia, we want resolutions in your area passed by your local authorities to say we endorse this. And people right? can get a copy of the resolution by Robbie. Big Pointing point, on, yeah. clicking on that eye. Up there. Exactly, exactly. All right, so Craig, we'll leave it there. Yeah. Um, thanks for joining us this week on yeah, the thanks, Citizens Rob. Report. Thanks to the viewer for tuning in. Remember, uh, click the like button, subscribe, uh, click, the, click the bell icon and share. And tune in next week for more.